Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of A Tramp Abroad by Mark Twain. Volume 8, Chapter 24 I Protect the Empress of Germany. That was a thoroughly satisfactory walk, and the only one we were ever to have, which was all the way downhill. We took the train the next morning and returned to Baden-Baden through fearful fogs of dust. Every seat was crowded, too, for it was Sunday, and consequently everybody was taking a pleasure excursion. And it was hot. The sky was an oven, and a sound one, too, with no cracks in it to let in any air, and an odd time for a pleasure excursion, certainly. Sunday is a great day on the continent, the free day, the happy day. One can break the Sabbath in a hundred ways without committing any sin. We do not work on Sunday because the commandment forbids it. The Germans do not work on Sunday because the commandment forbids it. We rest on Sunday because the commandment requires it. The Germans rest on Sunday because the commandment requires it. But in the definition of the word rest lies all the difference. With us, it's Sunday, meaning stay in the house and keep still. With the Germans, it's Sunday and weekday meaning seem to be the same. Rest the tired part. And never mind the other parts of the frame. Rest the tired part. And use the means best calculated to rest that particular part. Thus, if one's duties have kept him in the house all week, it will rest him to be out on Sunday. If his duties have required him to read weighty and serious matter all week, it will rest him to read light matter on Sunday. If his occupation has busied him with death and funerals all week, it will rest him to go to the theater Sunday night and put in two or three hours laughing at a comedy. If he is tired with digging ditches or felling trees all week, it will rest him to lie quiet in the house on Sunday. If the hand, the arm, the brain, the tongue, or any other member is fatigued with inaniation, it is not to be rested by adeading a day's inaniation. But if a member is fatigued with exertion, inaniation is the right rest for it. Such is the way in which Germans seem to define the word rest. That is to say, they rest a member by recreating, recuperating, and restoring its forces. But our definition is less broad. We all rest alike on Sunday by secluding ourselves and keeping still, whether that is the surest way to rest the most of us or not. The Germans make the actors, the preachers, etc. work on Sunday. We encourage the preachers, the editors, and the printers to work on Sunday. And imagine that none of the sin of it falls upon us. But I do not know how we are going to get around the fact that if it is wrong for the printer to work at his trade on Sunday, it must be equally wrong for the preacher to work at his, since the commandment has made no exception in his favor. We buy Monday morning's paper and read it, and thus encourage Sunday printing. But I shall never do it again. The Germans remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, by abstaining from work as commanded. We keep it holy by abstaining from work as commanded, but also by abstaining from play, which is not commanded. Perhaps we constructively break the commandment to rest because the resting we do is in most cases only a name and not a fact. These reasonings have sufficed in a measure 
to mend the rend in my conscience, which I made by traveling to Baden-Baden that Sunday. We arrived in time to furbish and get to the English church before services began. We arrived in considerable style, too, for the landlord had ordered the first carriage that could be found, and since there was no time to lose, our coachman was so splendidly liveried that we were probably mistaken for a brace of stray dukes. Why else were we honored in a pew all to ourselves, away up among the very elect at the left end of the chancel? That was my first thought. In the pew directly in front of us sat an elderly lady, plainly and cheaply dressed. At her side sat a young lady with a very sweet face, and she was quite simply dressed. But around us and about us were clothes and jewels which it would do anybody's heart good to worship in. I thought it was pretty manifest that the elderly lady was embarrassed at finding herself in such a conspicuous place, arrayed in such cheap apparel. I began to feel sorry for her and troubled about her. She tried to seem very busy with her prayer book and her responses, and unconscious that she was out of place, but I said to myself, she is not succeeding. There is a distressed tremulousness in her voice which betrays increasing embarrassment. Presently the Savior's name was mentioned, and in her flurry she lost her head completely and rose and curtsied instead of making a slight nod as everybody else did. The sympathetic blood surged to my temples, and I turned and gave those fine birds which I intended to be a beseeching look. But my feelings got the better of me and changed into a look which said, If any of you pets of fortune laugh at this poor soul, you will deserve to be flayed for it. Things went from bad to worse, and I shortly found myself mentally taking the unfriended lady under my protection. My mind was wholly upon her. I forgot all about the sermon. Her embarrassment took stronger and stronger hold upon her, and she got to snapping the lid of her smelling bottle. It made a loud, sharp sound, but in her trouble she snapped and snapped away, unconscious of what she was doing. The last extremity was reached when the collection plate began its rounds. The moderate people threw in pennies, the nobles and rich contributed silver, but she laid a twenty-mark gold piece upon the book rest before her with a sounding slap. And I said to myself, she has parted with all her little hoard to buy the consideration of those unpitying people. What a sorrowful spectacle! I did not venture to look around this time, but as the service closed, I said to myself, Let them laugh. It's their opportunity. But at the door of this church, they shall see her step out into our fine carriage with us, and our gaudy coachman shall drive her home. Then she rose, and all the congregation stood while she walked down the aisle. Apparently, she was the Empress of Germany. No, she had not been so much embarrassed as I supposed. My imagination had started on the wrong scent, and that is always hopeless. One is sure, then, to go straight on misinterpreting everything clear through to the end. The young lady with her imperial majesty was a maid of honor, and I had been taking her for one of her boarders all that time. This is the only time I have ever had an empress under my personal protection, and considering my inexperience, I wonder I got through with it so well. I should have been a little embarrassed myself if I had known earlier what sort of contract I had on my hands. We found that the empress had been Baden-Baden several days. It is said that she never attends any but the English form of church service. 
I lay abed and read and rested from my journey's fatigue the remainder of that Sunday, but I sent my agent to represent me at the afternoon service, for I never allow anything to interfere with my habit of attending church twice every Sunday. There was a vast crowd in the public grounds that night to hear the band play the Fremersburg. This piece tells one of the old legends of the region, how a great noble of the Middle Ages got lost in the mountains and wandered about with his dogs in a violent storm until at last the faint tones of a monastery bell calling the monks to a midnight mass caught his ears. And he followed the direction of the sounds and was saved. A beautiful air ran through the music without ceasing, sometimes loud and strong, sometimes so soft it could hardly be distinguished, but it was always there. It swung grandly along through the shrill whistling of the storm wind, the rattling patter of the wind, and the boom and crash of the thunder. It wound soft and low through the lesser sounds, the distant ones, such as the throbbing of the convent bell, the melodious winding of the hunter's horn, the distressed bangs of his dogs, and the solemn chanting of the monks. It rose again with a jubilant ring and mingled itself with the country songs and dances of the peasants assembled in the convent hall to cheer up the rescued huntsman while he ate his supper. The instruments imitated all these sounds with a marvelous exactness. More than one man started to raise his umbrella when the storm burst forth and the sheets of mimic rain came driving by. It was hardly possible to keep from putting your hand on your hat when the fierce wind began to rage and shriek, and it was not possible to refrain from starting when those sudden and charmingly real thunder crashes were let loose. I suppose the Fremersburg is a very low grade of music. I know indeed that it must be a very low grade of music, because it delighted me. It warmed me, moved me, stirred me, uplifted me, enraptured me, and that I was full of cry all at the same time, and met with enthusiasm. My soul had never had such a scouring out since I was born. The solemn and majestic chanting of the monks was not done by instruments, but by men's voices, and it rose and fell and rose again in that rich confusion of warring sounds and pulsing bells and the stately swing of that ever-present enchanting air. And it seemed to me that nothing but the very lowest of low-grade music could be so divinely beautiful. The great crowd which the Fremersburg had called out was another evidence that it was low-grade music. For only the few are educated up to a point where high-grade music gives pleasure. I have never heard enough classical music to be able to enjoy it. I dislike the opera because I want to love it, and I can't. I suppose there are two kinds of music, one which feels just as an oyster might, and another sort which requires a higher faculty, a faculty which must be assisted and developed by teaching. Yet if bass music gives certain of us wings, why should we want it any other way? But we do. We want it because the higher and better like it. We want it without giving it the necessary time and trouble. So we climb into that upper tier, that dressed circle, by a lie. We pretend we like it. I know several sort of people like that. 
and I propose to be one of them myself when I get home with my fine European education. And then there is painting. What a red rag is to a bull, Turner's slave ship was to me before I studied art. Mr. Ruskin is educated in art up to a point where that picture throws him into as mad an ecstasy of pleasure as it used to throw me into one of rage last year, when I was ignorant. His cultivation enables him, and me now, to see water in that glaring yellow mud and natural effects in those lurid explosions of mixed smoke and flame and crimson sunset glories. It reconciles him, and me now, to the floating of iron cable chains and other unfloatable things. It reconciles us to fishes swimming around on top of the mud, I mean the water. The most of the picture is a manifest impossibility, that is to say, a lie, and only rigid cultivation can enable a man to find truth in a lie. But it enabled Mr. Ruskin to do it, and it has enabled me to do it, and I am thankful for it. The Boston newspaper reporter went and took a look at the slave ship floundering about in that fierce conflagration of reds and yellows, and said it reminded him of a tortoise-shell cat having a fit in a platter of tomatoes. In my then uneducated state, that went home to my non-cultivation, and I thought, here is a man with an unobstructed eye. Mr. Ruskin would have said, this person is an ass. That is what I would say now. Months after this was written, I happened into the National Gallery in London, and soon became so fascinated with the Turner pictures that I could hardly get away from the place. I went there often afterwards, meaning to see the rest of the gallery. But the Turner spell was too strong, and it could not be shaken off. However, the Turners which attracted me most did not remind me of the slave ship. However, our business in Baden-Baden this time was to join our courier. I had thought it best to hire one, as we should be in Italy by and by, and we did not know the language. Neither did he. We found him at the hotel, ready to take charge of us. I asked him if he was all fixed, and he said he was. That was very true. He had a trunk, two small satchels, and an umbrella. I was to pay him $55 a month and railway fares. On the continent, the railway fare for a trunk is about the same as it is for a man. Couriers do not have to pay any board and lodging. This seems a great savings to the tourist, at first. It doesn't occur to the tourist that somebody pays the man's board and lodging. It occurs to him by and by, however, in one of those lucid moments. Chapter 25. Hunted by the Little Chamois The next morning we left in the train for Switzerland, and reached Lucerne about ten o'clock at night. The first discovery I made was that the beauty of the lake had not been exaggerated. Within a day or two I had made another discovery. This was that the lauded chamois is not a wild goat, that it is not a horned animal, that it is not shy that it does not avoid human society, and that there is no peril in hunting it. The chamois is a black or brown creature no bigger than a mustard seed. You do not go after it. It comes after you. It arrives in vast herds and skips and scampers all over your body, inside your clothes. Thus it is not shy, but extremely sociable. It is not afraid of man. On the contrary, it will attack him. Its bite is not dangerous but neither is it pleasant. 
Its activity has not been overstated. If you try to put your finger on it, it will skip a thousand times its own length in one jump, and no eye is sharp enough to see where it lights. A great deal of romantic nonsense has been written about the Swiss chamois and the perils of hunting it, whereas the truth is that even women and children hunt it, and fearlessly. Indeed, everybody hunts it. The hunting is going on all the time, day and night, in bed, out of it. It is poetic foolishness to hunt it with a gun. Very few people do that. There is not one man in a million who can hit it with a gun. It is much easier to catch it than to shoot it. And only the experienced chamois hunter can do either. Another common piece of exaggeration is that about the scarcity of the chamois. It is the reverse of scarce. Droves of 100 million chamois are not unusual in the Swiss hotels. Indeed, they are so numerous as to be a great pest. The romancers always dress up the chamois hunter in a fanciful and picturesque costume, whereas the best way to hunt this game is to do it without any costume at all. The article of commerce called chamois skin is another fraud. Nobody could skin a chamois. It is too small. The creature is a humbug in every way, and everything which has been written about it is sentimental exaggeration. It is no pleasure to me to find the chamois out, for he had been one of my pet illusions. All my life it has been my dream to see him in his native wilds some day, and engage him in the adventurous sport of chasing him from cliff to cliff. It is no pleasure to me to expose him now and destroy the reader's delight in him and respect for him, but it must still be done. For when an honest writer discovers an imposition, it is his simple duty to strip it bare and hurl it down from its place of honor, no matter who suffers for it. Any other course would render him unworthy of the public confidence. Lucerne is a charming place. It begins at the water's edge with a French of hotels and scrambles up and spreads itself over two or three sharp hills in a crowded, disorderly, but picturesque way offering to the eye a heaped-up confusion of red roofs, quaint gables, dorber windows, toothpick steeples, with here and there a bit of ancient embattled wall bending itself over the ridges, worm-fashion, and here and there an old square tower of heavy masonry, and also here and there a town clock with only one hand, a hand that stretches across the dial and has no joint in it. Such a clock helps out the picture, but you cannot tell the time of day by it. Between the curving lines of hotels and the lake is a broad avenue, with lamps and a double rank of low shade trees. The lakefront is walled with masonry like a pier, and has a railing to keep people from walking overboard. All day long the vehicles dash along the avenue, and nurses, children, and tourists sit in the shade of the trees or lean on the railing and watch the schools of fishes darting about in the clear water and gaze out over the lake at the stately border of snow-hooded mountain peaks. Little pleasure steamers, black with people, are coming and going all the time, and everywhere one sees young girls and young men paddling about in fanciful rowboats or skimming along by the help of sails when there is any wind. The front rooms of the hotels have little railed balconies where one may take his private luncheon in calm, cool comfort and look down upon this busy and pretty scene and enjoy it without having to do any of the work connected with it. 
Most of the people, both male and female, are in walking costume and carry alpenstocks. Evidently, it is not considered safe to go about in Switzerland, even in town, without an alpenstock. If the tourist forgets and comes down to breakfast without his alpenstock, he goes back and gets it and stands it up in the corner. When his touring in Switzerland is finished, he does not throw the broomstick away, but lugs it home with him to the far corners of the earth, although this costs him more trouble and bother than a baby or a courier could. You see, the alpenstock is his trophy. His name is burned into it. And if he has climbed a hill or jumped a brook or traversed a brickyard with it, he has the names of those places burned into it too. Thus, it is his regimental flag, so to speak, and bears the record of his achievements. It is worth three francs when he buys it, but a bonanza could not purchase it after his great deeds have been inscribed upon it. There are artisans all around Switzerland whose trade it is to burn these things upon the alpenstock. And observe, a man is respected in Switzerland according to his alpenstock. I found I could get no attention there while I carried an unbranded one. However, branding is not expected, so I soon remedied that. The effect upon the next detachment of tourists was very marked, and I felt repaid for my trouble. Half of the summer horde in Switzerland is made up of English people. The other half is made up of many nationalities. The Germans leading and the Americans coming next. The Americans were not as numerous as I had expected they would be. The 7.30 table to halt at the great Schweizerhof furnished a mighty array and variety of nationalities, but it offered a better opportunity to observe costumes and people. For the multitude sat at immense long tables, and therefore the faces were mainly seen in perspective. But the breakfasts were served at small round tables, and then, if one had the fortune to get a table in the midst of the assemblage, he could have as many faces to study as he could desire. We used to try to guess out the nationalities and generally succeed tolerably well. Sometimes we tried to guess people's names, but that was a failure. That is a thing which probably requires a good deal of practice. We presently dropped it and gave our efforts to less difficult particulars. One morning I said... There's an American party. And Harris said, Yeah, but name the state. I named one state, and Harris named another. We agreed upon one thing, though, that the young girl with the party was very beautiful and very tastefully dressed. But we disagreed as to her age. I said she was 18. Harris said she was 20. The dispute between us waxed warm, and finally I said, with a pretense of being earnest, Well, there is one way to settle this. I will go and ask her. Harris said sarcastically, Certainly, that is the thing to do. All you need to do is use the common formula over here and go and say, I'm an American. Of course, she'll be glad to see you. Then he hinted that perhaps there was no great danger of my venturing to speak to her. I said, I was only talking. I didn't intend to approach her, but I see that you do not know what an intrepid person I am. I am not afraid of any woman who walks. I will go and speak to this young girl. The thing I had in my mind was not difficult. I meant to address her in the most respectful way and ask her to pardon me if her strong resemblance to a former acquaintance of mine was deceiving me. But when she should reply that the name I mentioned was not the name she bore, I meant to beg pardon again, most respectfully, and retire. There would be no harm done. I walked her table, bowed to the gentleman, 
and then turned to her and was about to begin my little speech when she exclaimed, I knew I wasn't mistaken. I told John that it was you. John said it probably wasn't, but I knew I was right. I said you would recognize me presently and come over, and I'm glad that you did, for I shouldn't have felt so much flattered if you had gone out of this room without recognizing me. Now sit down, sit down. How odd it is. You are the last person I was ever expecting to see again. This was a stupefying surprise. It took my wits clear away for an instant. However, we shook hands cordially all around, and I sat down. But truly, this was the tightest place I was ever in. I seemed to vaguely remember the girl's face now, but I had no idea where I'd seen it before, or what name belonged with it. I immediately tried to get up a diversion about the Swiss scenery to keep her from launching into topics that might betray that I did not know her. But it was no use. She went right along upon matters which interested her more. Oh, dear, what a night that was, when the sea washed the forward boats away. Do you remember it? Oh, don't I, I said. But I didn't. I wish the sea had washed the rudder and the smokestack and the captain away. Then I could have located this questioner. And do you remember how frightened poor Mary was and how she cried? Indeed I do, I said. Dear me, how it all comes back now. I fervently wished it would come back, but my memory was a complete blank. The wise way would have been to frankly own up, but I could not bring myself to do that after the young girl had praised me so much for recognizing her. So I went on, deeper and deeper into the mire, hoping for a chance clue, but never getting one. The unrecognizable continued with vivacity. Do you know George married Mary after all? Why, no. Did he? Indeed he did. He said he did not believe she was half as much to blame as her father was, and I thought he was right, didn't you? Well, of course he was. It was a perfectly plain case. I always said so. Why, no, you didn't. At least that summer. Oh, no, not that summer. No, you are perfectly right about that. It was the following winter, I said it. Well, it turned out Mary was not in the least to blame. It was all her father's fault. At least his and old Darley's. It was necessary to say something, so I said. I always regarded Darley as a troublesome old thing. Yes, he was. But then they always had a great affection for him, although he had so many eccentricities. You remember that when the weather was the least cold, he would try to come into the house? I was rather afraid to proceed at this point. Evidently, Darley was not a man. He must be some other kind of animal. Possibly a dog. Maybe an elephant. However, tails are common to all animals, so I ventured to say, And what a tail he had. One? He had a thousand. Now this was bewildering. I did not quite know what to say, so all he said, Yes, he was rather well fixed in the matter of tails. Well, for a black and a crazy one at that, I should say he was, she said. Okay, it was getting pretty sultry for me, and I said to myself, Is it possible she is going to stop here and wait for me to speak? If she does, the conversation is blocked. A negro with a thousand tails is a topic which a person cannot talk upon fluently and instructively, without more or less preparation as to diving rashly into such a vast subject. 
But here, to my gratitude, she interrupted my thoughts by saying, Yes, when it came to tales of his crazy woes, there was simply no end to them if anybody would listen. His own quarters were comfortable enough, but when the weather was cold, the family were sure to have his company. Nothing could keep him out of the house. But they always bore it kindly, because he had saved Tom's life years before. You remember Tom? Oh, perfectly. Fine fellow that he was, too. Yes, he was, and what a pretty little thing his child was. You may well say that. I never saw a prettier child. I used to delight in petting it and dandling it and playing with it. So did I. Well, you named it. What was that name? I can't call it to mind. It appeared to me that the ice was getting pretty thin now. I would have given something to know what the child's name was. However, I had the good luck to think of the name that would fit either sex, so I brought it out. I named it Francis. From a relative, I suppose. But you named the one that died, too. One that I never saw. What did you call that one? I was out of neutral names. But as the child was dead and she had never seen it, I thought I might risk a name for it and trust to luck. Therefore, I said, I call that one Thomas Henry. She said musingly, That is very singular, very singular. I sat still and let the cold sweat run down. I was in a good deal of trouble, but I believed I could worry through it if she didn't ask me to name any more children. I wondered where the lightning was going to strike next. She was still ruminating over that last child's title, but presently she said, I've always been sorry you were away at the time. I would have had you name my child. Your child? Are you married? I've been married thirteen years. Christened, you mean? No, married. The youth by your side is my son. Seems incredible, even impossible. I do not mean any harm by it, but would you mind telling me if you're anything over eighteen? That is to say, will you tell me how old you are? I was just nineteen the day of the storm we were talking about. That was my birthday. That did not help matters much, as I did not know the day of the storm. I tried to think of some non-committal thing to say to keep my end of the talk up and render my poverty in the matter of reminiscences as little noticeable as possible. But I seemed to be about out of non-committal things. I was about to say, you haven't changed a bit since then, but that was risky. I thought of saying, you have improved ever so much since then, but that wouldn't answer, of course. I was about to try a shy at the weather for a saving change when the girl slipped in ahead of me and said, How I have enjoyed this talk over those old happy times, haven't you? I have never spent such a half an hour in all my life before, I said, truthfully and with emotion, and I could have added, and I would rather be scalped than spend another one like it. I was wholly grateful to be through with the ordeal, and was about to make my goodbyes and get out when the girl said, But there is one thing that is ever so puzzling to me. Why, what is that? That dead child's name. What did you say it was? Here was another balmy place to be in. I had forgotten the child's name. I hadn't imagined it would be needed ever again. However, I had to pretend to know anyway, so I said, Joseph William. The youth at my side corrected me and said, 
No, Thomas Henry. I thanked him in words and said with trepidation, Oh, yes, I was thinking of another child I had named. I have named a great many, and I get them confused. This one was named Henry Thompson. Thomas Henry, calmly interposed the boy. I thanked him again, strictly in words, and stammered out, Thomas Henry, yes, Thomas Henry was the poor child's name. I named him for Thomas, uh, or Carlyle, the great author, you know, and Henry the uh, Eighth. The parents were very grateful to have a child named Thomas Henry. Well, that makes it more singular than ever, murmured my beautiful friend. But does it really? Why? Because when the parents speak of the child now, they always call it Susan Amelia. Well, that spiked my gun. I could not say anything. I was entirely out of verbal obloquies. To go further would be a lie, and that I would not do. So I simply sat still and suffered, sat mutely and resigned there, and sizzled, for I was being slowly fried to death in my own blushes. Presently the enemy laughed a happy laugh and said, I have enjoyed this talk over old times, but you have not. I saw very soon that you were only pretending to know me, and so, as I had wasted a compliment on you in the beginning, I made up my own mind to punish you, and I have succeeded pretty well. I was glad to see that you knew George and Tom and Darley, for I have never heard of them before, and therefore could not be sure you had and I was glad to learn the names of those imaginary children, too. One can get quite a fund of information out of you, if one goes at it cleverly. Mary and the storm, and the sweeping away of the forward boats were all facts. All the rest, fiction. Mary was my sister. Her full name was Mary Blank. Now do you remember me? Yes, I said. I do remember you now. And you are as hard-headed as you were thirteen years ago in that ship, else you wouldn't have punished me so. You haven't changed your nature nor your person in any way at all. And you look as young as you did then. You are just as beautiful as you were then, and you have transmitted a deal of your comeliness to this fine boy there. If that speech moves you any, let's fly the flag of truce with the understanding that I am conquered and confess it all of which was agreed to and accomplished on the spot. When I went back to Harris, I said, Now you see what a person with talent and address can do. Excuse me, I see what a person of colossal ignorance and simplicity can do. The idea of your going and intruding in on a party of strangers that way and talking half an hour, why well, I never heard of a man in his right mind doing such a thing. What did you say to them? I never said any harm. I merely asked the girl what her name was. I don't doubt it. Upon my word, I don't. I think you're capable of it. It was stupid in me to let you go over there and make such an exhibition of yourself. But, you know, I couldn't really believe you would do such an inexcusable thing. What will those people think of us? What did you say? How did you say it? I mean, the manner of it. I hope you were not abrupt. No, I was careful about that. I said, my friend and I would like to know what your name is, if you don't mind. No, that was not abrupt. There is a polish about it that does you infinite credit. I'm glad you put me in there. That was a delicate attention, which I appreciate in its full value. What'd you do? She didn't do anything in particular. She told me her name. Simply told you her name? 
You mean, mean to say she did not show any surprise? Well, now come to think of it, she did show something. Maybe it was surprise. I hadn't thought of that. I took it for gratification. Oh, undoubtedly you were right. Must have been gratification. Could not be otherwise than gratifying to be assaulted by a stranger with such a question as that. Then what'd you do? I offered my hand, and the party gave it a shake. I saw that. Did not believe my own eyes at that. Did the gentleman say anything about cutting your throat? No, they all seemed glad to see me, as far as I could judge. And do you know I believe they were? I think they said to themselves, Doubtless this curiosity has got away from his keeper. Let us amuse ourselves with him. There's no other way of accounting for their facile docility. You sat down. Did they ask you to sit down? No, they did not ask me, but I suppose they did not think of it. You have an unerring instinct. What else did you do? What did you talk about? Well, I asked the girl how old she was. Undoubtedly, your delicacy is beyond praise. Go on, go on, don't mind my apparent misery. I always look so when I'm steeped in a profound, reverent joy. Did she tell you her age? Yes, she told me her age, and all about her mother, and her grandmother, and her other relations, and all about herself. Did she volunteer these statistics? No, not exactly. I asked the questions, and she answered them. Was it not possible for you to forget to inquire into her politics? No, I thought of that. She's a Democrat. Her husband is a Republican, and both of them are Baptists. Her husband? Is that child married? She's not a child. She is married, and that is her husband who is there with her. She got any children? Yes, seven and a half. That's not possible. No, she has them. She told me that herself. Seven and a half? How do you make out a half? Where does a half come in? There is a child which she had by another husband. Not this one, but another one. So it is a set child. And they do not count in full measure. Another husband? Is she another husband? Yes, four. This one is number four. I don't believe a word of this. It's impossible upon his face. Is that boy there a brother? No, that is her son. He is her youngest, and he is not as old as he looks. He's only eleven and a half. These things are all manifestly impossible. This is a wretched business. It's a plain case. They simply took your measure and concluded to fill you up. They seem to have succeeded. I'm glad I'm not in the mess. They may at least be charitable enough to think there ain't a pair of us. Are they going to stay here long? No, they leave before noon. Here is one man who is deeply grateful for that. How'd you find out? You asked, I suppose. No, long at first I inquired into their plans in a general way, and they said they were going to be here a week, make trips round about. But toward the end of the interview, when I said you and I would tour around with them with pleasure and offered to bring you over and introduce you, they hesitated a little and asked if you were from the same establishment that I was. I said you were, and then they said they had changed their mind and considered it necessary to start at once to visit a sick relative in Siberia. Oh, me, you struck the summit. You struck the loftiest altitude of stupidity that human effort has ever reached. You shall have a monument of jackass skulls as high as the Strasbourg Spire if you die before I do. They wanted to know if I was from the same establishment you hailed from. Did they say that? What do they mean by establishment? I don't know. It never occurred to me to ask. 
Well, I know. They mean an asylum. An idiot asylum, you understand? So they do think there's a pair of us, after all. Now what do you think of yourself? Well, I don't know. I didn't know I was doing any harm. I didn't mean to do any harm. They were very nice people. And they seemed to like me. Harris made some rude remarks and left for his bedroom. He was a singularly irascible man. Any little thing would disturb his temper. I had been well scorched by the young woman, but no matter. I took it out on Harris. One should always get even in some way, else the sore place will go on hurting.